Hello, you're listening to A Private View. I'm Maeve Doyle, and our guest today is Jeremy Shaw. Uh, We'll be talking to Jeremy from his studio in Berlin about his early career and his most recent show at the Pompidou Center. I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to A Private View, Jeremy Shaw. Hi. Hi. What I wanted to let you do is, is... Explain who you are and what you do in your own words. You can take it back as far as you want, because it's a good story from the beginning. (laughs) Um, I I work across a lot of media, I think. Um, Well, I think, I know. Um, But my work is generally, it revolves around altered states in general. And that's like a really blanket, you know, a really wide umbrella of uh, interest that can you know, that spans from, um, you know, cultural and scientific sort of notions of altered states. And, um, you know, this can take shape as, um, I don't know, electrophotography of psychedelic plants or uh, sculptures of of flotation tanks or multi-channel film installations where I've created, you know, where I've fabricated fictional subcultures. Um, So it's, it's, it's really quite wide, but, but, at the core of it is always this, there's always this sort of, a, this, this questioning of the age old human notion of transcendence um, and the, the sort of endless um, subjective uh, explanations of what that word or definitions of what the word is. So that's, you know, in a, in a, in a big umbrella, <laughs> that's what it's about. Um, in the past, say, I think most, most people recognize me for making films and installations. Um, but there's also always a pretty, a pretty rigorous studio practice that goes along with it. Um, and where the films and videos are, at least these days, quite, quite loaded, full and full of all sorts of different things I'm interested in, from religion to, you know, religion and science kind of playing on equal fields. Um, just they're kind of these messy concoctions and um whereas the studio practice is generally like a more focused um you know element of the film works that's been sort of amplified and i mean i'm speaking in quite loose terms here but <clears throat> that's <laughs> that's how i explain it i guess i'm waiting because you might have forgot something that you kind of oh well i mean <laughs> i could go you know i could go into detail. go on <laughs> it's like you know, the work has evolved from, say, this piece, Morning Has Broken, which was, you know, um, pretty easily summarized. You know, it's a, it's a super eight film document of ravers leaving a building at sunrise. I use a, a song from the 1970s, put it on top and, uh, you know, to create a kind of, um, I don't know, a new proposition for, for these, these, these um, you know, uh, times that are i don't know i don't know how old the song was i know 30 years apart you know the temporalities are 30 years apart um just i think back in vancouver um i studied as you did as well in emily carr and it was at a moment during the real reign of photo conceptualism you know in that city and so there was a way that we were taught art i or at least i perceived it this way that you were taught to be able to explain every single element of your work. And if you weren't able to do that, it was kind of, it was invalid, you know? So, so it, it breeded this real wave of like very conceptual academic rigorous work that was 
yeah, incredibly um, explainable. You know, it was very, it was very good to write about, and you could, you could give a really great artist talk about it, and and everyone would walk away knowing exactly what you were thinking and what your strategy was. Your question, in a sense, like like there's a Francis Bacon retrospective on right here now, or about Man and Beast. It's like if you can explain it, why would you do it? So did the work hold? on its own without the explanation. Well, exactly. And, and I mean, that was always something I, I believe I was curious about, you know, even back then. Um, and I did work that way for, for while I was in Vancouver, I think I was working with this A plus B equals C kind of idea of, of art making. Um, hopefully the works also had something more. I mean, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm being too harsh about it because I mean, I believe a Jeff Wall photo holds its own without knowing anything about it you know i think they're beautiful i do beautiful too. photographs you know <laughs> absolutely yeah, all those all those guys you know that whole school but it was it was this there was this kind of uh, sense that you really had to, you really had to know your shit otherwise you weren't you know you weren't uh, you weren't kind of valid there but and and that's yeah how I worked. Um, but I think it started. But, but, but that's a typical build on art history. I mean, to to be a contemporary yeah. artist, the, the jumping off point is what went before. And I think having gone through a lot of art school with you, you faced those challenges because you were challenging them. You were saying, "Yes, you're at. I meant the new part of things, and we're jumping off of." Yeah, I hope. I hope so. I mean, I got I got a lot of. I got a lot of kickback in art school, as you recall. And kind of like, you know, not, it was really surprising to me even, I think, because I, I didn't really, it wasn't like I was aggressively trying to provoke people like back then. I was just doing what I was interested in. And it really upset uh, certain a, people. That, a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, it upset yeah. a lot of people. And I'm, and I'm going to explain that because you, you leave it open for people to interpret. But just quickly now, <laughs> I'm going to say there was something that was going on where certain things were viewed as being transcendent and, and sort of sophisticated. And then other things were demonized, whether it was fashion or club culture. And you started this sort of practice where you were trying to say, no, that's all judgment-based. Because if you look at these things and society coming together, even drug culture, everybody's entering those social arenas for the same reason to transcend whatever reality so where does the um, who are the gatekeepers that say this is good or this is sophisticated and this isn't yeah well I think I was doing things um, it's it's tricky like um, because it was just certain people that you know I was doing things like and I was getting a lot of um, feedback that would be like well, there's a difference between home video and home and video art, Jeremy. Like these kind of con, con you know, um, that was my criticisms from from my teachers um, that I was making home video basically, and that uh, yeah, it was it was was not art what I was doing, um, which was fine. I mean, I guess that's a good thing to come up against when you're at that age and like you know. I'm sure most um, of them made it to your opening at the Pompidou. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, I mean, and it's funny because uh, I think I think these attitudes have shifted heavily in, in recent years. I think that was a moment where there was, uh, I don't know, I mean, I'm not in the education system really, but um, there was an old guard in that school, definitely, that was like, definitely not interested in what I had to say. Um, yeah, that, uh, that was a funny, funny time in my life and obviously formative and, and 
And that, you know, going on, I made that DMT work, which you were talking about, which is a, you know, kind of a, a seminal piece for me because it really started to inform what I did after that. And DMT was the one where I filmed 30 different people smoking this hallucinogenic drug DMT. Um, and only, which is a drug that um, incapacitates you. Basically, it's a really extreme psychedelic that when you smoke it, it hits you within 30 seconds and you you basically go from being sober to higher than you'll ever be in your life. And then between six, 20 minutes later, you start to come down in a similar way. Um, and when it's within a minute of sort of starting to feel that you're regaining a sense of your usual reality, um, it clears out of your body and you're sober again. So it's this, you know, truly mind blowing experience. And the only thing, the only parameters I gave to the subjects that I recorded was that um, when you started to feel like you were coming down from the drug, uh, start trying to explain it to the camera. And so while you watch the videos of everyone, you are reading subtitles of them immediately after their trip, trying to recollect the experience. And the experience is, you know, it's, it's, yeah, for lack of a better term, it's this mind-blowing experience where you, if you really break through with the drug, you're, you've lost all sense of self and connection to your this this reality that we live in so it's a it's a it's like yeah it's like visiting a completely parallel world without any kind of reference back to back to where where your body is sitting in the chair um i didn't know what dmt is when you did this work and i remember you explaining it to me what i saw was portraiture so even within the traditional sense of of art history, you were working on a new kind of portraiture. Uh, they were mm. all framed in a similar way. The, the distance <clears throat> from the, the face was the same distance. The angle was similar. And <clears throat> every one of them had this... Uh, that the only person who I saw doing similar work at the time was Bill Viola. And, and you had <clears throat> come out in 2004 with this DMT. In, from my point of view, I, I hear what you're saying now this DMT portraiture series, which was beautiful. Like it did stand alone without the explanation. So the fact that there was so much more to it uh, spoke to your yeah, cultural was... influences and, and, and what you were doing in your life and, and how drugs mm -hmm. were being demonized by some people, but sort of a, a way of making alternative values and ethics and families around drug culture. Yeah, well, it was like 2004. Um, I mean... The drug was very, very uh, difficult to procure back then. I mean, it's like in the past, say, I don't know, seven or eight years, you've seen this massive kind of re-emergence of interest in psychedelics, you know, um, as a result of, well, many different factors, but you're seeing them reintroduced into clinical studies for depression and PTSD and things like this, you know, um, and so, but, but at that time in 2004, it was, you know, it was still totally taboo, totally. Um, no, I mean, the fact that Gwyneth Paltrow is talking about it on a goop. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, it was Lin <laughs> the, one that, the one that got me was, it was like maybe five years ago, Lindsay Lohan talked about doing ayahuasca. Oh, I know, I thought, the wow, yoga like, community. Everyone wow. at yoga, everyone who's doing a downward dog yeah. is going to, I it's, know. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I mean, that book, there was a book called... Um, I don't know, two or three years ago called How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, who mm -hmm. was a, from what I know, he's a, a food writer, a food critic or a food writer. And he went out at 60 and decided to try uh, DMT and, and a few other psychedelics and wrote this massive New York Times bestselling book. And I think 
I literally think that book has had an incredible influence on people's, um, you know, um, feelings around, around psychedelic culture, which was so, you know, completely ostracized after, after Timothy Leary and the the sixties and all of this fantastic research about it, you know, towards treating alcoholism and drug abuse and PTSD, et cetera, was just abandoned, completely abandoned. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I mean, not that that was what I was trying to do back then. I was really, you know, I was someone who grew up taking LSD and MDMA and, and always being, well, that's not true. Um, always kind of looking for more, you know, I, ever since I was a child, I grew up religious and I, you know, I was always looking for the bigger, you know, this, the bigger conclusion. And, uh, and so DMT was this kind of fabled drug, you know, um, that I'd heard about for years, that it was kind of the be all end all of psychedelics. And when I finally got a hold of it, it was, yeah, it was at the just sort of the, the start of me practicing art seriously. And I thought, oh, well, <laughs> you know, I have to do something with this. And so it really kind of just happened organically that, that, that piece, but the piece, you know, the thing that, that was instantly, um, uh, evident was when I tried to have when everyone started to try and explain the experience it you know language completely failed them and and you know they couldn't elucidate what had just transpired in this in this you know other world that they had visited because they just didn't have the words to explain it and that that feeling that that sort of um that fraught nature of language and inability to describe profound experiences or explain profound experiences has informed my work from, you know, from that day forward. That's been something that I, it's just constantly there in my work and constantly something that I, that I discuss and almost celebrate, you know, um, in the work. So it's, yeah, it was a very key piece and something that, that I refer to, you know, anytime I do an artist talk or something, I almost always start by showing a clip of that and just basically summarizing, you know, you can, you can see everything I'm doing now, basically in that piece, you know, it's obviously evolved into far more narrative and far more, I don't know, just like just bigger, <laughs> more engineered ways. But this is the kind of core of my my practice is still um, still evident, I think, in that piece. I agree. So, I yeah. Agree. yeah. What was your early life like? And uh, when did you realize you were going to be an artist? Yeah, well, I mean, I grew up in a place called Deep Cove, which is suburban north vancouver um it's only 30 minutes to downtown vancouver but it's like when i grew up there it was like the the end of the earth to most people you know and it was completely undesirable to be out there it was mostly middle to low income um families but yeah i grew up there and and i was always you know always somehow involved in art and music and uh even theater and things as as a kid and a teenager i was constantly that was what was consumed me so I think I always knew I would somehow end up in the arts somehow even when I was when I was really young I remember I used to want to be a police sketch artist because I thought that was really amazing like you know yeah I, I mean I was totally I was a I was obsessed with horror films and b I was totally paranoid of getting kidnapped so I had this funny thing going on in my because that was like peak 80s kidnap paranoia kind of time and uh, and so yeah, I always thought that would be a really great way to add to society if I was a police sketch artist, you know, drawing these kidnappers from people's memories. Um, yeah, I wasn't really interested in much else. I mean, skateboarding and you know, 
music and stuff, but it was all one thing to me. It's all one thing to me as well. <laughs> yeah. In, 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 the pre, in the pre-internet world, you and I got arrested when we went to pick up Blueprints <laughs> for a I show know. that you had opening. <laughs> oh, um, and, and I wonder if that would still happen. I'm looking at your catalog now in the page of Blueprints, and I remember, I remember us getting surrounded by the RCMP and dragged out of the car. And I don't know, is, was that a place in time that'll never happen? Then ended up on the front page I, of the paper the day that the Gulf I, War. I mean, it was insane. And was I'm glad we can talk about it now. Do you think that would happen today? That was, uh, I was doing an exhibition in 2003. Um, for Tracy Lawrence? And, yeah, the Tracy Lawrence Gallery, which doesn't exist anymore um, in Vancouver. Uh, it, was my fir- it was my first gallery show. It was my first commercial gallery show. Um, yeah, she was great. And um, I had made a video installation, a two-channel video installation that had a, a boy shooting a firework, a Roman candle at a high school. Uh, and that was kind of like the main piece. Uh, but then I had also... I had downloaded a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook from, uh, which was a 1960s publication that these guys had made, or maybe one guy had made, with all sorts of um, like recipes for how to make household hallucinogens, like making hallucinogens out of nutmeg and bananas, and also like how to make explosives out of things you could find in your house using like I don't know house cleaner and oh, I don't know baking soda, you know, to create a bomb. So I had downloaded this thing, which was, you know, this countercultural kind of like cult book. Um, and I, so it was like all these, I just had, you know, hundreds of pages of printouts from the computer. And I gave them to this group, these three 15 year old boys, um, along with, I had this stock um, blueprint diagram where there was just kind of like the outline where, where people would have then drawn the plans of a building in and it had all the whatever the places where you would write checked by etc and so i gave them a bunch of these and these <laughs> this copy of the anarchist cookbook and asked them to just make collages with it and so they they drew i don't know 21 or 21 of them because that was what that was what it ended up with 21 different collages you know where they glued pieces of the cookbook on and then did their own little drawings and wrote notes and whatever these really kind of uh, you know totally juvenile sort of uh, fantasies of destruction and then I took them out to a suburb of Vancouver called, Rich- in, called Richmond to a place that was still making ammonia-based blueprints. Most people had already gone digital, but I wanted these to be like that authentic blueprint. So I dropped them off there and, t- you know, uh, he told me to come back whenever. And, and then I remember getting a funny call from them and saying, oh, can you pick them up at a specific time? And I was like, yeah, I guess. So then I guess I asked you to come with me. And we went out there and... We As did. I went in to pick them up. The you know eight police officers surrounded Honestly. me, had me, and separated you. <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget that because I'll never forget you yelling at me from the car, like, "Are you okay?" And, and uh, I was so worried yeah, they, about you. They went. I think I kept phone. saying I to them, "He's an artist." <laughs> <laughs> I remember they they took my phone book. I had a phone book with me, um, and went through it, and were calling all sorts of numbers in it randomly, asking like. To, to prove I was an artist and stuff, calling Tracy. And yeah, and so they, they finally let us go, but they confiscated the original drawings. <laughs> and then Tracy got on the phone with them and, they, and demanded they release them. And so then I got to go out and pick them up. And, and so we did, we had the blueprints on the wall, but we also had this bag 
um, this evidence bag with the original drawings in it, and it, and it had all this police tape on it. it said, you know, confiscated by the RCMP, uh, treated, and it said to wear gloves. It says wear gloves because it's been treated for explosives. Blah, blah. So they totally, you know, they made the work in their overreaction, basically. Yeah, was, and yeah. I have to add, it was about four <laughs> years after. Uh, Four years after Columbine High, so everything was on high alert. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, that was definitely what the work was tapping into was this kind of hysteria around, uh, you know, explorations of of violence or or whatever within, te- you know, how much how much hysteria there was in the eighties with heavy metal. Kind of, it felt like that was going to happen. That was starting to happen again. Um, there was so much finger pointing going on at the musicians the music those guys were listening to etc but it's, it's funny though because it really you're prob- probably doing now exactly the same thing you're uncovering things that are sort of controversial in a benevolent way and it's creating reactions uh, i didn't make it to your pompadour show i tried to mm-hmm. but uh can you talk a bit about the opening you had at the pompadour and how it sort of even traces back to work like your early work sure yeah i mean yeah well there was a moment um just to sort of get there because that's like i mean it opened it opened february 25th 2020 so that's 16 years after dmt there was a point when i moved to berlin a few years after moving to berlin i was invited to a to do a group show at kw here kunstwerk which is a, a really um, important institution uh that was at that point curated by Susanna Pfeffer it was her final show there and she proposed a show called one-on-one and the premise of that show was that every artwork every artist was to make a new work that was only ever to be seen by one person at a time and um and so each artwork had its own room or a special space built for it with a door so it was really simple concept but ended up being really radical because it, in the way that people had to actually talk about the art, like after they saw it, you know, they had to like really explain what they saw to each other because they didn't have each other there to kind of influence their opinion about it or anything. So anyways, when she approached me, I, I realized I had kind of two options of how to make the work. The first would be to just allow people to, you know, have their time with, an, with a piece of art and, you know, take it as they want, uh, enjoy it on their own terms. And that would be quite beautiful. Or I could make something in which I really demanded um, the viewer, you know, experience it a certain way and kind of took the autonomy away from them. And so that's what I did with that piece is I created this single channel video that had a, um, it was rear projected in this room. So there was no, no kind of equipment in the room or anything, totally carpeted, this kind of strange container space. And so there was only a chair. And when you sat down in the chair, the video would begin. And if you stood up for more than three seconds, the video would stop. Um, so I totally, you know, really forced people into watching it from this exact position that I wanted them to. Anyways, it, w- it was the first time that I, rather than making work about altered states, you know, about drugs or about rave or whatever, about um, about these experiences, I was tr- actually trying to elicit the experience from the viewer. So it was the first time I really went for like a phenomenological response from the viewer. So I made a series of that, of after that, of para, these sort of parafictional short films that all, <laughs> that all look like they're from the past. So they look like the 1970s are shot on um, 16 millimeter, or they look like the mid nineties and they're shot on VHS, 
but then they're they're always narrated by someone who's telling you that they're either 500 years or 100 years in the future. And um, the core of these stories is about basically, well, they're called the Quantification Trilogy. And the quantification is a scientific advancement or discovery that happens uh, only in a few years from now, where science basically um, is able, figures out a way that they can completely um, you know, empirically deduce what's happening in someone's brain during a transcendental spiritual experience. So they're able to tell you exactly which neurons are firing. And, and it's across the board, the exact same experience for every single human. So with this information, humanity, like for the, ma the majority of humanity abandons faith and belief completely, abandons religion, spirituality, all, all sorts of practices that are, um, yeah, spiritually linked, basically is abandoned. And people become addicted to a virtual reality system that, that replicates the experience. And, and then 80 years from then, um, science again discovers that this part of the brain that actually was responsible for fate was actually evolution or was biologically necessary for our survival. And so there's, a, there's an announcement that humanity is set on a path towards extinction which most people are quite apathetic towards. But in these films, um, there's these groups called periphery altruist cultures who are attempting to somehow divert this extinction, um, this extinction verdict for, for humanity by, by doing all sorts of fantastic things. Like there's a film called Liminals where the group is, it looks like it's- Your film called Liminals. Yeah, it's yeah. my film. Yeah, It looks like it's the 1970s this group of people are, they look like mm, some kind of somatic practice group or even quite culty. But what they're doing is they're, they're relearning um, spiritual rituals and somatic, uh, you know, uh, movement practices from throughout the course of human history. And they're, what they're doing is they're, they're re resurrecting these, these rituals. And this is in tandem with injecting machine DNA into their brain, which is kind of an allusion to some type of AI, you know, um, chemical enhancement. And they're hoping that this will somehow um, evolve them forward, evolve humanity. So there are these totally fantastic setups that, that look like documentaries from the past and eventually slowly, slowly, slowly build into these kind of cathartic music video-like moments and then rupture into like a digital meltdown so anyways that's a long way to start describing the new piece the one from the pompadour which is basically an amplified version of these short films because it's seven new ones that look like they're coming from anywhere between the late 1950s and the mid 1990s all with each one has a different group of people uh with a different ideology a different kind of movement-based belief system really embodied choreographic practices they all play on their own, these seven different screens in this huge room. Um, you can watch them individually um, or you can stand at the back and watch the entire thing. But every 25 minutes, they start to unfold. They start to really, everything starts to get really chaotic and kind of come undone. And a soundtrack overwhelms the whole space. And then at a certain point when the soundtrack reaches kind of peak volume, all the films lock into a sync choreography and so you have this sort of trans temporal choreography going where everyone on every screen even if it's super eight film 
or VHS video or Hi8, they're all dancing the exact same choreography. And that's sort of like the <laughs> this peak kind of that trans-temporal parallel reality kind of uh, alignment thing that happens. And that's the Pompidou show. And it, then, of course, it also ruptures and becomes digital. And then there's lights that come on. It's it's like, it's kind of the, well, I think it's the swan song of how I'm working these days, but it's totally dramaturgical, you know, and it's got this, this real engineering towards sucking you into these documentaries and then slowly becoming some kind of music video and then really attempting to, you know, um, elicit some type of emotional response because you're sitting, you're sitting in the midst of seven, you know, four meter screens that are strobing and every person around you is dancing the same choreography. So it's really, yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, um, admittedly manipulative and engineered towards gaining some type of response. It's if I were to sum up your your work to anyone, I would say it's about the breaking down of barriers, barriers between uh, people, barriers between class structures, barriers between countries, barriers between generations, history, the way it's told. How would you respond to that? I think that's definitely an element. Um, I mean, these things are quite, um, yeah, they have, you know, they're just like really alchemical in the influence and in the, like you say, the the groups that appear on these screens have people that range from, you know, their, their early 20s to their late 70s. You know, there's a real kind of uh, sort of post-race, sort of utopianism to them in that that's not even an issue you know it's not even part of it anymore they're so mixed up that that's not even discussed even though i'm throwing them back in time there there's uh and you don't get that far you know they're too short to kind of go into that type of structure but there's a real lack of hierarchy within them um with race and gender and and age as well as with how I discuss religion and science and hedonism and somatic practices, you know, everything is kind of flattened within this science fiction world that I create. And that's, I think that's the, the, uh, the benefit of science fiction or whatever is that you can create these worlds where you get to choose what's, what's happening, you know, and that's how you, that's, that's how you decide. Uh, what's coming up for you? Cause we have to wrap, this up okay. so w- there has um, to be a part two in sure. six months or so uh, sure i'm coming up is i mean just like that piece from the pompadour the, the seven channel face it's called face shipping index it, it's going to be at the arrows museum in denmark in april and in the mona museum in tasmania in june and then in september i'll do the leon biennale with a new work so that's my that's my year so far. Who represents your work in London? Uh, Koenig Gallery. Perfect. I hope you have a yes. show in London soon and that you're back. So do I. You've been listening to Maeve Doyle's Private View. I am an art critic and artistic director at Maddox Gallery. This podcast is brought to you courtesy of Maddox Gallery. The music is by Korshid Homi, and it's produced by Will Fitzpatrick at Soho Radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you.